All right. Welcome to We the People podcast. This is Nick Matson, and we are here today with Chris Arend, uh, Pastor Robles, uh, school board member and author of a recent column. Um, and we're going to get into that. Good morning. And uh, we're going to kind of jump right in. Uh, of course, this is a kitchen table talk over the grill of cancel culture. And uh, Chris, you um, you wrote a piece, a, a 5,000 word piece that I, I very much um, I can relate. I don't know if you read any of my House on Fire series. No, I read a yet. four. It was a four part series of thousand words or so each. So I very much relate to taking a big bite and kind of a uh, mine, mine was um, I think I thought yours was very, uh, very well rounded in terms of um, going through topic by topic and breaking down um, different areas. So um, for our listeners and our, our viewers who are unaware um, the title of it and did you come up with the title that yeah, it, it was it was all my baby i came up with the title and uh, and the analysis and, yeah and all did my research all right so right. so then uh, starting with the title um it was the um, on cal coast news um it said the myth of systemic racism that's right that was the title before we go into this i got to say one thing you mentioned that i'm a member of the school board i've got to give a little bit of a disclaimer yes, i'm sir. here in Absolutely. my capacity as a private citizen who happens to be a member of the school board but this article i wrote and this discussion here i'm not speaking as a member of the school board on behalf of the school district on behalf of the board or any other board members I'm just a private citizen who has looked at this issue of systemic racism and did so in my capacity as a private citizen, not as a board member. Absolutely. And and wrote that um, column as a private citizen. Oh, as exactly. Well. exactly. Exactly. Right. Right. OK. And um, so speaking as a private citizen, your your background is fairly interesting to me. Uh, go ahead and, and give us your background. Well, I'm I'm one of about a half dozen born and raised Americans who ever went over to Germany and studied law in Germany and became a German lawyer. I'm also qualified as a California lawyer. I went to a law school at UC Berkeley. Uh, I did most of my practice overseas in international corporate work, finance work, international commercial arbitration. And about 15 years ago, I returned from Frankfurt back to the Central Coast here. It was time to come home. All right. Welcome back. And um, when, how, um, how long did you spend over there in Germany? Oh, probably a total of about 25 years, some of it with the Army, okay. about three years. Uh, I was in the Army for three years. That's where I learned German. And uh, then I studied law over there, which is a much more intense program than American law school. Okay. We have two state bar exams first after your studies, then you do a clerkship period and take your second state bar exam where they actually teach you to be qualified for judicial office and go through that type of analysis. And I use some of those techniques I learned over there uh, to analyze this issue of systemic racism. Okay. And um, so let's, and then you've been, and when did you move to Paso Robles area? At uh, the Paso Robles area, we were in Morrow Bay for about a year and a half, deciding whether or not we wanted to stay in the area, and then we moved to uh, okay. Paso Robles. So I've been in Paso Robles since uh, 2006. Okay. And you uh, you were a part of, you know, kind of going to the background on the school board, you were a part of, um, what, from what I understood, uh, just hearing uh, people talk from the community, uh, a part of a movement to 
um, put accountability back into the, the school board? What, the Paso Robles School District had that? some severe financial issues and uh, management issues back in 2018. Uh, the superintendent at the time had was not doing a very good job. Uh, and I was one of three board members who uh, ran and was elected as new board members. Uh, the superintendent at the time, Mr. Williams, decided then he didn't want to stay on any longer. And in the meantime, we were, we've done a good job of turning around the finances. That was the biggest concern back in 2018. Uh -huh. uh, we've clarified some major issues. We just recently had a discussion about freedom of speech in the classroom who has freedom of speech, yeah, the students, yeah. who doesn't, the teachers, they, there they speak for the school district. Yeah. Uh, so we've, we've, done, we've done quite a lot of things there. We were making really good progress until March of this year when everything got shut down. And then right. like every other school district, we've been trying to get along, trying to do the best we can for the children, but it's, it's extremely difficult. How would you describe uh, working as a school board member through COVID and, and what, it, what it was like? Is there an analogy or anything that you can help uh, help people understand what it's like to try to do that uh, when there's really so it, little? It's, it's just a very difficult situation. You have to be flexible. Our, uh, we have fantastic school administrators. Our superintendent, Kurt DeBost, is fantastic. The members of the so-called cabinet, uh, the senior management there, yeah. all doing an excellent job and everybody is adapting. The union has been good. We've got the teachers back in the classroom. Now we just have to get the students in the classrooms, but the teachers are there using their classrooms as studios for distance learning. And we, we know the students have got to get back in the classrooms fast. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, a number of reasons. Um, and, and I know from your, uh, from covering the school board, you've been an, a vocal source for, um, couldn't, uh, Trying to set up our American flag back there, um, <laughs> all the little details. Yeah. Uh, so I know that you've been a vocal uh, leader to try to get as much normalcy and and uh, and get the kids back to school um, from graduation. I know you were you were a vocal supporter of of trying to do as much of a normal graduation yeah. as possible, yeah. um, pushing against the grain a little bit or or, or against the the stream. How would you describe? That oh, I don't know. We've, we've got the, this state government in California is everybody has different fear levels. And I have the feeling that in California, we have a fairly low tolerance for fear. In other words, people are really scared of this thing. Yeah. And our uh, yeah. state government is really scared of COVID. Uh, there, of course, it's not COVID is not a joke. It is a it's a serious disease, especially for someone in my age. I certainly don't want to get it. Right. But uh, life must go on. We have to. It, my big concern is now simply that we are at risk of losing of losing our students if we don't get them back in the classroom, no matter how well we structure distance learning, it's just not the same as in-person instruction. It just doesn't work, work as well right. for most kids. There are a couple of exceptions. I know right. one exception, yeah. but uh, most children are really suffering. And plus the social problems and so on. A lot of kids are just down and out depressed. It's, it's, it's very sad, very yeah. sad. And I, I've seen some reports from teachers who have expressed that, um, that some students are excelling in the in a distance learning environment and as somebody who was homeschooled i was homeschooled from first grade through seventh grade before i went to eighth grade 
Um, and I don't know if throwing uh, uh, fresh fish to the sharks, like throwing a, a, a teenager into eighth grade is a great idea. Um, but I did come in, you know, academically ahead of my class, but socially um, had no idea what was going yeah, on in yeah. the world. Um, so, you know, in, in some ways that benefited me greatly. Um, I, I learned, you know, I learned alternatives to learning, um, sure. to initiative um, and self-awareness and things that have helped me succeed in life. Um, but for many people, that's not going to work for them. I was, maybe I was an introvert who, who thrived in that environment and, you know, some other students. And, and I think that's kind of the, maybe a, a, a good segue, but they're all of the students are not the same and they're, they don't learn the same. They don't adapt the same. They don't need the same things, um, uh, across the board when you start to get down to the minutia of, of what yeah. a, and we, in, in general, what the view is that uh, in our discussions at the school district, uh, again, not speaking for the school district, but there's a fairly general view there that what we want to do is give parents and students the choice to come back to the classroom. Uh, we recognize that some people just for health reasons or be it health reasons of the students. We have some students who have impaired immunity, uh, whether it's reasons of health at parents or grandparents who might be living in the house still. Uh, there are reasons why people don't want to come back to in-person right. education. Uh, our tendency would be let those who want to come back, come back, and those who don't, uh, keep on at distance learning, and hopefully they'll uh, decide at some point to come back to the classroom. Yeah. Yeah, I've, uh, I'm a... A big proponent of personal responsibility in that sense and that uh, we when we shut down everything in March um, and we took steps to make sure that we knew kind of what the disease was or how it was going to be transmitted and how to protect the most vulnerable we we knew a lot of what we still know today in terms of the the communicability of the disease and and who it's going to impact and and who's yeah. in danger um, it kind of is still is the same thing. And what I felt was ab about 10 weeks in that we have given everybody who needs a head start, a head start. And now everybody needs to take personal responsibility and protecting themselves. Um, it's, I think it, it's unfair a little bit that, you know, with, with the report from the CDC that 94% of of people who die of COVID die with comorbidities, 2.6 on an average, 2.6 comorbidities, and then you have doctors say, well, only 60% of Americans are, you know, actually healthy. So you're you're talking about a large vulnerable sure, population. A large vulnerable population out there. And, they have reason to be concerned. I've yeah. got a one or two comorbidities. Yeah. I'm sure aside from age. Yeah. And uh, as I say, I certainly don't want to get it. I'll tell you one thing: if we go back to the classrooms. Uh, before uh, the shutdown, I was auditing classes. When I had time, I'd go and sit and just yeah, see how yeah. the kids were responding to the teacher and getting acquainted with the new methods of teaching. They don't have chalkboards anyway, anymore. It's all whiteboards. No more of that chalk dust. Right, <laughs> right. And, uh, and I plan on going back to the classroom again as soon as possible. I'll have a certain risk, but I would never expect, for instance, the teachers to take on a risk that I'm not willing to take on personally. That's right. just not, uh, it's not right. 
Yeah, and and we, you know, everybody is going to have a different level of risk, and also, um, and and also accessory risks, like you you mentioned, uh, you know, having an, an elderly family member in the home, or or somebody who maybe has yeah. comorbidities that they need to take extra care for, and they go, you know what, this is why I can't participate. Sure. Um, and I think I think we're way past the time. That's per, my personal opinion. We're way past the time when um, there needs to be sweeping um, mandates, and we're 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 well deep into the atmosphere where we and the environment that we should be educated and taking personal responsibility as we go out through life and getting back to that. Yeah, and we've, we've got to be, everyone has to demonstrate a bit of flexibility. We've had, of course, uh, in the political scene, there's been criticism, we never had a national strategy. Uh, well, yeah. a national strategy in a country this size with so many different geographic areas and uh, population densities, you know, what may, might work well yeah. in New York City might not be the best strategy for, say, Wyoming. Right. And I brought that up in my column, too. And my column was very much, up, you know, focused on that and where the the geographic and the the population um, and and just the fact that you're across country, like what's happening in New York City isn't happening in, in San Luis Obispo County. Right. And you have to take, you know, so I, I was a bit, I'm a big proponent of, of one, the state governor taking care of the state and then exercising uh, due diligence in, in assigning responsibility to counties as, and then let the counties go and say, okay, now you, we know what this is and we don't have to, you know, because there's an outbreak in, in a certain industry in LA, shut down the state industry across the board because of that. So yeah, there's a lot of damage that can be done by being too cautious by yeah. shut, shutting down too much as we saw. I mean, it, we've had a lot of personal catastrophes out there. People who've lost their homes because they lost their jobs. And even with the unemployment, it wasn't enough to, to make it. There's yeah. been a lot of, a lot more suicides, apparently a lot more child abuse. We know that uh, child abuse cases are not being reported as much because the children aren't present in school where the teacher can actually see what's happened to the right. an injured child. Right. Uh, so it's, it's the dietary, um, situations that, that that has been a problem though in the school district we were providing, we continued to provide meals and we still are. Right. Great. But it's, it's, uh, there's a reason why normal life is good because that's where things function the best, of course. And, yeah. And this, uh, we've got to get pass this shutdown as soon as possible. Well, the, uh, the, in Pennsylvania, I don't know if you saw that, but the, uh, there was a federal judge who struck down yeah. the constitutionality yeah. of, of the lockdowns in Pennsylvania. So I, I hope that's a, a positive trend that we can get to some constitutional level. I, I, we were watching some reports come from Japan and the, the person who was reporting, uh, why, one, why Japan did so well, but also why they function so well as a society is that the, the population is, educated to their constitution and they understand the constitution they also understand their rights and the and the government understands its rights and they actually function well yeah. as a a unit whereas you have a lot of of uh, you know misunderstanding or or the the education and basic civics could be better in the united states yeah. and in california yes there are a lot there are a lot of students out there a lot of people out there we see it also in our voting percentages people who don't know how important it is to uh, understand how the government functions. And it's, uh, 
we, we've got a ways to go. That's one of the things I've discussed with our superintendent also is uh, improving the quality of civics instruction at the high school yeah. and, and the uh, middle, middle schools. Uh, that's, that's great to hear because I, I find that to be something in our education system that needs more support and uh, from sure. statewide sure. To, to national that I, I want my kid to, and my children, children to understand what their, um, what their rights are in, in, in between them and another American citizen, what their rights are between sure. them. I'd rather see that at, the, at a lower level than we're getting it now. Uh, maybe it would um, help some of these social issues. Um, so, um, one, thank you so much for everything you're doing at the school board level and, and, as, uh, and for the rest of the school board getting us through this and, and trying to get us all back to school. Um, switching gears now to your, um, to your, your sure. personal sure. life and, and uh, your life as a private citizen um, and your background uh, will go into the, the column you wrote. And um, I was very surprised. I thought I was going to you know, do a quick read on it. And I, I scrolled through this um, a very long, uh, multi-topic uh, discourse. I don't know. It, it was I, almost well, like a thesis. I, I, well, I wrote it. Uh, I wanted to do justice to the topic. I yeah. wanted to analyze the modern concept of systemic racism, which we hear all the time on TV. Every time a, a talking head gets up there, uh, on TV, they're talking about systemic racism and uh, how the United. Some of them saying the United States is inherently evil. We'll never get over it. It's. It's. I thought this is a topic, especially because it's been so divisive in our country, uh, in uh, not just since the George Floyd uh, death, but also since uh, it's been a hot topic for quite a while. Basically, going back to. Uh, around the time of Trayvon Martin, which was uh, the trigger for the Black Lives Matter movement. Yeah. Uh, so I, I wrote a somewhat longer piece with lots of footnotes and this yeah. type of stuff, yeah. and, and it's an analytical piece. It's not uh, a, quick, a quick read, but I, I wrote it, I think, in a language that's pretty easy to understand and, and yeah. follow, and the concept itself is pretty sim simple. I looked at this thing, systemic racism, and because I'm a lawyer and, you know, lawyers, when we draft contracts or statutes, there's often a section of definitions at the front of the document. Right. Uh, the uh, most important uh, topic is definitions of what these things are, because when we're discoursing this between two citizens, knowing what you're talking about is very it's, important. It's, it's sort of a good starting point to know what you're talking about. And I, I saw that there are many people out there who say systemic racism, of course, it's everywhere. We see it all the time. Look at the disparities in uh, criminal justice statistics, in economic statistics, all of these things, health statistics. COVID was, uh, right, in, right, was, related. was linked to right. systemic racism. Right. And then there, the rest of us out there say, wait a minute, systemic racism? The civil rights legislation, that was 50 years ago. Our law hasn't permitted dis racial discrimination now in roughly 50 years, right. not just in public law that governs, uh, uh, you know, how the government acts, but also in private dealings. If an employer nowadays engages in racial discrimination, that employer is going to be out of business. There is a whole, you know, there are tons of attorneys out there just waiting uh, to, to nail anybody who engages in racial discrimination in right. business or housing or uh, providing services, any number, any number of things. So it's, uh, 
it's that has been eliminated in the law. The only other basis you might say then for systemic racism is, well, everybody who works in the system is racist, or most people are. That's not the case. I mean, right. the, the, genera the generation now that mans our police uh, forces, they're already one or two generations removed from uh, the old Bull Connor generation that was... Uh, you know, objecting to uh, desegregation back in the, uh, sure. in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, and you, I'm sure there are individual racists out there. There, are, As I point out in the article, racism in the traditional sense of the term is equivalent to being really stupid because you're prejudging somebody on the basis of the color of their skin to paraphrase Martin Luther King, instead of right. the uh, uh, content of their character. And uh, the definition of stupid is uh, not, you know, jumping jumping to conclusions and, and acting without uh, looking at the facts. Yeah. So it, it's, it's pretty simple there. Racism in the old definition of the term is uh, stupidity. Well, I, I looked at it and said, what happened? How did we, why are we still talking about systemic racism? I looked into the definition of racism and I saw that what has happened, it started in academia exactly 50 years ago. The idea arose that racism isn't just racial prejudice, being prejudiced against somebody because they're from a specific race. It also has an, it requires the element of power. In other words, power to control other people, power to control society. If you have racial prejudice but you can't oppress other people, uh, because you don't have the power, then you can't be racist. That was the doctrine that started developing right. about 50 years ago. And it's morphed into the new definition of systemic racism, which uh, basically the basic concept is we are in a society where whites have the power, there are ethnic disparities, uh, these must be due to systemic racism, uh, because the whites have the power, and it's even gone to the point where you get this, frankly, idiocy in the book White Fragility that uh, all whites are inherently racist, and, you know, the concept of white privilege, and all whites right. are inherently racist, right. and uh, uh, no member of an ethnic minority can be a racist because they don't have the uh, power. For instance, they uh, consider that the proponents of the modern definition of systemic racism, they uh, consider the concept of reverse racism just to be an alibi uh, raised by uh, the white supremacists. It's, right. uh, uh, it's gotten a bit odd. So I decided to take a look at this, do a definitional analysis initially, and uh, then see in the law, we look to see when we're defining a term in a contract or in a statute, does that term really function well? Does it work well? So I, first of all, I worked out the con. I illustrated the difference between the concept of racism under the old definition, which was racial prejudice, and racism under the new definition that's widespread through academia. It's basically throughout academia. There, yeah. it kind of it goes under the heading critical race theory. That sounds right. a little bit. And, and critical race theory has its roots in critical theory. 
back in it, it, it goes back to basically a, a professor in Harvard Law School around I think it was the 70s uh, and a group of students who were concerned that well we've got rid of the racial uh, segregation laws but uh, there's still discrepancies what's all this about and so this doctrine of critical race theory developed and we see the it's practically referred to nowadays outside of academia as the uh, systemic racism. Uh, so I looked at the definitional foundation of that and saw, do these definitions that they use to define systemic racism, do they work, for instance, in other contexts? I looked at history, you know, and racism has been with us throughout history. Matter of fact, slavery, uh, the United States is often condemned for having been founded on slavery. And sure, slavery was an institution reflected in the United States Constitution when it was first adopted. Of course, slavery existed at that time basically throughout the world in one form or another. Slavery still exists in some forms in various places of the world. Uh, and I'm not talking about just uh, where people have to work to get by at, at relatively low wages, but I'm talking where forced labor and all yeah. the, the real kinda nasty it, aspects it, and of slavery. And it kind of goes under the, the heading of human trafficking at this point in, in some instances. Human trafficking or in, in some parts of the world it's uh, it's basically slavery uh one you know people will take people from another ethnic group and they're the equivalent of slaves uh, the north koreans even if you read about how they farm out their uh laborers one of the one of their exports for hard currency is their labor force yeah and they hire them out to various places where those people are treated like dirt and they can't change jobs they can't run away if they do their families will either march into the camps or get killed directly in north korea it's that north korea is a slave state most of their population probably works under slave-like conditions they can't change employment you can't change boss there's only one boss so it's a situation that still exists well i i looked back at some of the where racism really was systemic. And in this country, it was systemic until really about the 1970s, the early 1970s, late 1960s, uh, but where it was embodied in the system and in the people who controlled the system, who worked in the system. The classic example from the mid-20th century is Nazi Germany, right? Nazi Germany that was built on racism, uh, superiority of the Aryan race and all this other foolishness. Right. Uh, now, when you add that it aspect of power sure the nazis had the power so they were obviously racist in 1945 after the 8th of may when germany surrendered all of a sudden the nazis no longer had the power did that mean that all of a sudden they were magically transformed into no longer being racists right how about the imperial japanese uh they the, the rape of nanking uh that the it was they, they, they were the imperial japan was a terribly racist system until August of uh, 1945 when Japan surrendered. Did they all of a sudden no longer become racist? It, 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 doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Right. And when, when you take the context away, then things become, uh, it's, it's easier to move the narrative or, or change the narrative. But when a lot of this is coming, like you mentioned, from academia. And so you know, we're looking at an education system and, and maybe an education system that has, I, I don't know if it's broken or just has lost its way and needs to be co course corrected. There, there, there's a, this ideology of uh, 
critical race theory, systemic racism. It's widespread in the social sciences and academia. Now we've got to realize in academia, professors appoint uh, new professors. Uh, the uh, uh, faculty decides who gets promoted up to be a professor. And if you've got a bunch of people who are all into this thing of systemic racism or critical race theory, they're probably not going to want to appoint some, a new member to the faculty who doesn't toe the line. It's, right. uh, we have, frankly, a very incestuous system in academia. And uh, we now know that most professors are pretty far out on the, on the limb, on the left limb in uh, uh, their ideology. It's a self-perpetuating system. We see that in journalism. Look who get, the mainstream media, they tend to go to a few uh, national journalism schools where you've got the incestuous uh, faculty already yeah. already in place and they tend to admit students who have uh, expressed similar things in their undergraduate writings or in their high school writings. Uh, they go to the uh, to the networks, and yeah, the networks. They there aren't many networks out there. For instance, MSNBC is hardly likely to uh, hire a conservative journalist. It's just right. not going to happen. Right. CNN, the same way, you either toe the party line or you're not going to get hired. And same with uh, the other big networks. Right. So, it's uh, uh, and even like Fox News. Just just to to sit on that topic just for a moment. In um, Fox being considered uh, a right-leaning conservative outlet you even if they hire in um and they do i think more maybe more than anybody else hire in a you know a token liberal or or a left well, they, it's they, it's they, almost like a token though they've, well they've got this uh, slogan fair and balanced they they tend to do more balanced than the other networks, I think. Yeah. Uh, and th they also tend to distinguish more between their news broadcasts and their editorial broadcasts. Uh, you go to CNN, whether it's a news broadcast or an editorial broadcast, it doesn't make any difference there. They all hate Trump's guts. It's, it's the all, same it's, on MSNBC. It's all, it's, it's all the, the same stuff. And uh, you can yeah. tell that the news broadcasts are also directed by ideology and uh, also... Uh, partisanship. I mean, it'll be interesting to see how they uh, report today about the signing of these uh, two peace accords between yeah. Israel and the United Arab Emirates no, and Bahrain a, today. It's a big day, and there's also I, I read something uh, about the the Pope and and the Vatican giving a report to the UN today. It's it's a fairly big. There's there should be some pretty big narratives coming it, out today. It's a it's a big day for peace in the Middle East, but. Uh, I don't think we'll see much reporting on it in yeah. some of the media. Yeah, and 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 that I think reflects um, overall in their their viewers. You, and you have Fox News over the summer; um, they obliterated world records for you know viewership, while the rest of the media, um, I, I think it was, you know, a, at least fifty percent of the viewers were watching Fox, and then. The, the rest were picking off shares of, the, uh, they, of everybody it, else. Probably the networks are, are losing 
uh, viewership also because it gets boring after a while. I mean, how many times do you want to turn on a news network and the main story is always, we hate Trump, we hate Trump. After a while, I say, okay, that's, that's a given. You hate Trump, I know. But now give us some real news. And please, uh, yeah. a little bit of decent information, not so much spin. It's, yeah, there's uh, so, it's there's not reliable sorts of information at, at, anymore. Yeah, I've, I've noticed that too, that the, the narratives coming out is... And, and, I, and I get that 2020 being a presidential election year so much reflects on on how it it impacts a presidential election. So I get that there's some gravity to that. But, at, you know, not every single thing that happens in the United yeah. States has to do with whether Trump is, you know, is good or Trump is bad. And we, so. we've seen we've seen that, especially in the reporting on uh, this bias and the reporting on racial uh, incidents. Uh, going back to Trayvon Martin, I mean, that was, oh, we knew that everyone knew if you looked at the mainstream media, George Zimmerman was a murderer, you know, shot this young man down at, you know, in cold blood and yeah. so on. As it turned out, of course, after the fact, uh, what had happened is the young man had assaulted Zimmerman, was cracking his head on the sidewalk, and Zimmerman pulled his lawful weapon and shot the young man and killed him. It was the, but with your head getting cracked on the cement, that's liable to kill you, so it was turned right. out it was self-defense, right. and he uh, he was, as I recall, found not guilty. I don't even know if it went to charges. Uh, the uh, the Michael Brown shooting in Ferguson, where in both instances, by the way, President Obama just jumped right on and started condemning the uh, uh, the killing in uh, uh, Florida and uh, condemning the police in Ferguson. Yeah, the media was all over it until it turned out that uh, young Michael Brown had committed a series of really, he had made a series of really stupid decisions, such as stealing a box of cigars and turning that into a, uh, uh, a strong-arm robbery, and then yeah. walking down the middle of a street as if he carrying the right. box of cigars as if he wouldn't be uh, spotted, and then assaulting the cop, trying to take his gun, finally, then where there was no hands up, don't shoot. That was, of course, a figment of uh, his idiot buddy's uh, imagination it was just a lie yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, then he decided to charge a cop and a cop does not have a especially after he's been busted in the face already does not have to allow a 300 young man to pound young man to to charge him and take his weapon it doesn't he doesn't have right. to do that and he michael brown ended up getting shot dead even in this george floyd thing It'll be interesting to see what comes out there. I mean, it looked really bad on video. I thought it looked really bad on yeah. video. I think uh, I think everybody looked at that video and said that that we don't want that. Yeah, that looked that was very bad. But as we're finding out now, it's not video. That one clip isn't all that uh, there is right. to see. There was the chemical analysis of drugs in uh, George Floyd's uh, body. Uh, there was the fact that he was sitting in the vehicle saying, uh, I can't breathe. Probably was sitting down in the vehicle and thrashing about. Right. Uh, he was obviously in some sort of medical distress. It looks like now he was in medical distress because of uh, fentanyl. Of a high level of fentanyl. A very yeah. high level that level would have killed most people. It might yeah. be that he had developed a certain resistance to it, sure. but it was definitely right. affecting him. Yeah. So, And we know his defense is turned... Uh, the, Police uh, officers, defense attorneys have said that they're going to be making a big point of that. Now, I don't know how the litigation is going to come out, but it's it's not as simple as the first impression in the press. Unfortunately, right. the press creates that first impression, and people go bonkers. Do you, and we have we have uh, mass rioting throughout uh, many cities in the United States. Yeah. Do you think that uh, the the first impression 
um, is is trotted out there, and you see that with George Floyd, you see that with Jacob Blake. You know, uh, the the first view or the the view that triggers the the folks who have adapted or adopted the the critical race theory ideology or or that, and then they're fed this small bit of information that has a chemical sure. maybe a chemical reaction. It it it, fe it feeds right into the thing. They're they're already convinced by the ideology of systemic racism that the United States is an inherently racist country and all whites are inherently racist. I mean, can you imagine the how difficult it is to live in a society where you think everybody around you that you see uh, who's a, of different ethnicity, they all are prejudiced against you and they're just waiting to get you. I mean, this uh, that, that's a really stressy way to live. It's completely unnecessary to live like that, but if you're deep in that uh, uh, systemic racism ideology, and if you've been told that through your education, if that's become part of your own life, matter of fact, you, that you believe that, maybe you're involved in teaching ethnic studies and that's part of the uh, basic assumption of your curriculum as a teacher, yeah, you're going to, you're going to react right. the, the, with a hair trigger. And that, that's what happened. It got to the point, I remember in the first couple nights seeing clips of people driving around in Minneapolis saying, kill the white folk. I mean, that's, that's severe. And when I look at some of the radical voices out there, it's as if they can't wait until we get into a race war, which is the most god-awful thing you can possibly imagine. Look at Yugoslavia. My goodness, that's where ethnic pride can really lead, is where the, yeah. the Serbs and the Croatians and the Bosnians, horrendous things happening among citizens who just a few years earlier, a couple of years earlier, had been uh, all fellow countrymen and there was no such division. But So I, I understand personally the, the economic frustrations that we face as a population. And growing up in the time that I did, a, kind of a, a late Gen Xer, an early millennial, I'm kind of in, yeah. in this, depending on where you draw that line. And I, I, don't, I don't appreciate the... Um, the generational labels because it doesn't it, it's just like racist uh, um, ideology it doesn't actually encompass what that generation really is or believes in or is possible or, or is capable you know, of and you can't really de delineate anyway I mean you know, however many babies born in 1990 probably about the same number of babies born in 2000 is born in 2010 is born yeah. you know, every every year in between and so on it's just uh, there are the generations are perhaps marked by main experiences that they've experienced the greatest generation the World right. War two generation uh, they were marked by World War two but it wasn't really just one generation it was people from about age 18 up to about age right. 50 who were really involved if you look well at I, it. I I saw that something about Millennials I saw this meme about it that you know why uh, or or why millennials or Gen Z is is the way they are, and it's because they were all ten years old when a certain thing happened, and the world has not gotten any better since. It's like, well, that's saying gener Generation Z all was born on the same year because you're all ten years old, and in fact, so it it's it really tries to group a a large group into a somewhere where it's compartmentalized Which, and it can be and i think then it could be is you know, a, 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 a source of manipulation for control of oh you're that it's it's a it's a 
I did a, a shortcut, uh, especially for sociologists and you know the academic community to analyze things. That's what we right. have here again. Back with systemic racism, it's groupthink. We put people into a bunch of groups, and then we run statistical analyses and write lots of learned articles about it. Uh, but, but it's all this groupthink. Uh, the uh, when in the concept of systemic racism, the groupthink divides the country along uh, racial lines, creating a great deal, a great deal of and, hostility. And I think you, you brought up the I, some some are are forwarding the idea of a race war, and and that is really I think a, a great place to look at because when you well when you boil down the systemic racism idea, you've actually seen over the past course of six months, you've seen police officers with and. And I, I do want to um, dive into my linguistic and, and my, my philosophy on this. I don't call people black or white, or, or and, and I'm very much, as you can see, the, with the American flags, I believe in, in, in a human race that, that has competence and has ability and has, has upward mobility and has uh, sure. individual um, capabilities. So when I look at, I, and I don't identify as white, so when somebody's and people are going to put me in a category based on the color of my skin, I don't identify with. And so it's very interesting that the same people who would do that are also going to look at uh, another person and say, well, you can't you can't uh, tell me what their gender is. They get to assign their own gender. Yeah. But I can't you know, but I don't identify as white. Well, I, 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 this this whole ethnic identity thing uh, uh, at times I've been asked throughout my life. What's your nationality? You know, what, what yeah. your ancestors come from? I said, well, let me look at my passport. Oh, it says American. That's my nationality. Yeah. I don't. I, I'm not concerned about my my ethnic background. One of the things that disturbs me about uh, the discussion of uh, systemic racism is also sort of the cancel culture aspect. If you are white, in quotes, you know, if you're not down with the struggle, if you're uh, a white person, you can't possibly understand uh, the oppression that people have felt throughout their lives. If your your family never went through rough times, you know, not like our family went. That's all right. this one-upmanship on victimology, uh, the, and that's that's simply not the case. Basically, every one of us in the United States can look back at ancestors, not even going too far back. And you can find, yeah, they had a real tough time of it, either as new immigrants to this country or uh, the countries they originally came from. Uh, the, their, this type of one-upmanship on victimology, I don't really get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, and, and that's, you know, when I look back, and I've been uh, gifted, and I think everybody, I hope everybody took a, a great advantage of some of their downtime over the past six months to research um, as much as possible in their life and, and figure out what, what they want to do for the rest of their life. Uh, that's the one, I think, the, the one good thing about to hitting pause on the, on the society is, okay, let's do a bit of a reset, a bit of a pivot and, and decide things. But one of the things that jogged me was when we were approaching, um, we were approaching uh, June, t Juneteenth. And so I started looking into that. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge Fourth of July guy. I love Fourth of July. I've celebrated, obviously, all my life. And then I just, in the past few years, started hearing about Juneteenth and knowing, okay, well, they, there is an, another 
event, another uh, holiday that celebrates independence as well. And it's the end of the Civil War and the, the, la the final announcement that slavery is over, um, you know, that Juneteenth related to yeah. Galveston, Texas. Yeah, where they announced the, uh, uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, I think it was down in Galveston. In Galveston, yeah. yeah. It was, it so, was... so it was a significant time. That was the final announcement that yeah. everybody has been given this. Um, and so looking into that and, and knowing, okay, well, that is a, that is as meaningful to me as an American as the, as the Declaration of Independence, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, because it is an advancement of that freedom. Sure, to, it was, that's right. Amer American history is, we, we started out, you've heard the phrase American exceptionalism. It doesn't mean that we're better than everybody else. What it means is we were the exception to the rule when this country was founded. When this country was established in uh, the latter part of the 18th century, there was no comparable entity anywhere in the world. Uh, there were kings and queens and all sorts of potentates all over the place, but uh, not really anything comparable, especially on the size of yeah. the United States of America. Didn't mean it was perfect at the time from looking at it with hindsight. We have, of course, right. now uh, there's a the, social the hindsight aspect. bias. We, we look yeah. back and say, why weren't they like us? You know, Thomas Jefferson, one of the leading thinkers of his time, yes, he had slaves. George Washington, the same. We look at it with the views of uh, slavery we have nowadays yeah. with hindsight bias, yeah. and that's why people are calling to you know, tear down uh, Jefferson, uh, the Jefferson Memorial, or rename right. the Washington Monument, or or attack the the, the Lincoln Memorial. Yeah, I mean, so it's silly silly things, but we have been progressing from the inception of the country. We've been progressing with the growth of individual liberty, and that's the key, I think, to understanding a lot of the dispute. Focus on individualism and the individual. The United States went through the Civil War, which was a hugely traumatic event. At the time, I think the population was roughly 25, 30 million. We had something like, was it 600,000 dead? 620,000 Americans. I mean, a huge percentage of the population yeah. dead on the battlefield, plus yeah. all, all the wounded and everything. Tremendous social turmoil. Christ, as I recall, Lincoln bombarded New York because uh, they were, he was getting resistance to the war effort from the city of New York. Um, we went through that, and then that was sort of the first big advancement in uh, getting rid of the uh, racism. It didn't succeed all the way, of course not, but it got rid of slavery. That was this traumatic experience right. led to... Uh, well, the elimination a, of slavery. There was a cognitive dissonance between the, the what was written in the Constitution um, and all men created equal and and these civil liberties that we're all going to enjoy. Right. And but wait, what's going on over there? Yeah. That's that is not congruent with what we're well, doing. Well, after after that tremendous trauma, we had a period where there was integration going on, and then we got into the case of uh, the. Uh, famous Supreme Court case, Plessy versus Ferguson, that created the separate but equal doctrine. And then came all the Jim Crow legislation, and uh, President Wilson, Woodrow Wilson, uh, resegregated the federal government. Right. And it took a, another tremendously traumatic experience for the entire world, namely World War II, to uh, give also our society the impetus to take the next big step, which was getting rid of uh, segregation, getting rid of the Jim, Jim Crow laws. It started then with uh, Truman uh, reintegrating the armed forces, then uh, the 
famous Brown v. Board of Education case in 54. Uh, then Martin Luther King's fantastic achievement, the achievement of all those who worked with him on the civil rights movement, was to get rid of segregation in the law, get rid of the Jim Crow legislation, and also make it illegal to segregate in normal uh, dealings between people, uh, housing, jobs, etc. Right. So that, the, but it, t it was these two great traumatic experiences: the Civil War in the first step, and then World War II in the next step, that led to really the elimination of systemic racism in the traditional sense, right? In, Which is in legislated and 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 written, and and when you you yeah, brought up. People, their individual commercial dealings yeah, too, right. uh, with each other. That had that had to be dealt with, and it was successfully dealt so with. You, and 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 then it was a culture war also because you had people. Not only is it legislated with you mentioned Jim Crow laws, um, and it you know racism was legislated and and it built a culture and it built an idea and and a foundational. Uh, cause for people to feel emboldened to be racist because the law says well, sure, the law the law dictated go yes you, you know if you're one race you drink at one uh water fountain if right. you're another you go to the other water fountain and they uh and those water fountains were never never equally <laughs> right you know, they were placed. not cared for equally no no, or they, no not at all supplied. not at all so and then then though we also as part of the big civil rights legislation we realized that we also don't want people being racist in their commercial dealings with each other and so free uh, the uh, laws against housing segregation, uh, jobs, uh, job right. uh, uh, discrimination, so on. All of those laws were passed and enforced quite effectively. And as mentioned earlier nowadays, uh, any employer would be a fool to engage in racial segregation. It's uh, just asking to have your business shut down. And I, I think what we're missing right now, and I think it's a miseducation, um, is that the the Civil War, um, the the war, uh, the the battle for civil rights, or the the campaign for civil rights, the, those were ideological um, battles, and sure. and they they some of them turned into physical battles and physical manifestations of this ideological divide. But it for me, and because when you know I went, go back to you know me starting to research my history and getting into the Civil War and finding out that my so I, I knew my great-grandfather had moved over here from Sweden in, 18, in the 1850s. So I looked him up. I started doing uh, the, my ancestry. And, and so he moved to Minnesota in 1856, and that was five years before the, the breakout of the Civil War. So he, I, I got to go through his records and look and, and find out that he was a part of the 1st um, Minnesota Inf Volunteer Infantry Regiment. And that regiment was one of the, the famous regiments that they fought at the Battle of Bull Run. They fought at uh, Gettysburg. They have a, uh, a statue up at Gettysburg for their, their regiment. It is so to know that then also then, you know, we talked about our, our ancestry and, and going back through that. When I attach my personal story and my personal lineage now to a man who fought for he didn't fight for um, an, an ideology. He fought for the the rights and the freedom of, of any man. And and he, he joined that battle not being five years a, a citizen of the United States. Yeah, yeah. And says, no, this is wrong. We're gonna go to we're gonna go fight for this and we're gonna win this um, ideological battle on the battlefield. We're gonna remove that one. Okay, now we got that one done. Then we have a long, long um, history, another hundred years basically of of deep south um 
atrocities, but it, it was ideological back then. And I think that's what people are missing when they apply this critical race theory to the United States or the idea that the United States has always been racist. Well, a racist country doesn't fight itself and, and to the cost of 620,000 people for the abolition of slavery. Because the country is today not what it was uh, when the uh, almost 250 years ago, quarter millennium ago, when yeah. uh, the Revolutionary War was fought. It's almost been that long now. Uh, the uh, uh, Constitution is not the same Constitution that was written back uh, after the Revolutionary War. It was where there was there were lots of clauses in there about slavery and all this type of stuff. Right. That's been eliminated. The 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 law has been has been systematically or the concept of racism is not hasn't been embodied in the law now for a good two generations about 50 years right and uh and i do want to make a distinction on that for anybody listening because everybody needs to do their own research on this but that that the the racist um, laws that were put into effect were ideological and you can draw along an ideological line and a, and really a party line and i and i i do want, i do want to make that distinction here because there it's not without a source and it's it's a it's very important that people do their own research and go okay this is how we got here it wasn't because it, it, it's the amalgamation of oh this is an american thing is is patently untrue and people need to do their research yeah, it's it, that's right the it, it's been a long process and it was one of the most important processes in the course of human history is to also get away from this concept of this groupthink concept right all members of a race are inferior to members of another race or to the similarly racist concept all whites are racist and no member of an ethnic minority can be a racist right uh the uh we've made quite a transition but we still have people who as in the old days people exploit uh racial feelings, racial tensions. Politicians, leaders will do it. Hitler was the classic example of a demagogue who exploited prejudices that were existing in his culture. Well, we've got people nowadays who, who do that. Look at uh, Farrakhan, the leader of the black Muslims. I mean, talk about, talk about a racist in the old sense of the word. In other words, a person right. who judges others by the color of their skin, or their not by the content of their character. Yeah, right. yeah. I mean, uh, we've, we've still got these clowns out there who do that, uh, absolute race hustlers. Uh, we've got people who make a lot of money off this type of division, this group think where we classify people in groups and then uh, we, uh, we carry, carry on from there and make a lot of money off of it. Look at how many people are making good money in ethnic studies departments where they really right. push that line, right. uh, this uh, systemic racism line under the label uh, critical race theory. Uh, look at even someone like uh, Beverly D'Angelo who wrote uh, this book, White Fragility. Uh, she gets thirty to forty thousand dollars a pop for going to a uh, a corporation and so to say selling them dispensation if they they pay her for uh, giving them some consulting, holding a lecture, whatever right, it is. There right. she gets uh, she gets quite a chunk of uh, change off of. She's made a nice chunk of change off that uh, book she wrote, and it's got to be one of the most divisive works I think I've ever seen. Yeah. And I, I can't remember if it was Booker T. Washington or, or somebody else who said that you know, there is a, a, a group of people who make a living of um, 
of keeping the grievances of the sure. former slaves in front of the American public. And, and Beverly D'Angelo is, is a prime example of that. I, I find it, so she wrote a book from her perspective and maybe from her perspective and the group that she uh, congregates with. So, but she doesn't, she didn't write the book from my perspective um, and, and where I came from. She, she, it, what she wrote doesn't resonate with me at all. And so it's, it's, she's getting this idea and this. She, she wrote at a very, also emotional level, the, uh, uh, how, how people feel about being a member of one race or the other. And it's so just a, a lot of feely, feely stuff in there yeah. and microaggressions. God only knows what, uh, it, it's based though. The, the theoretical basis of it is this group think. And that's, that's what my, article really opposes is this concept of groupthink that the the old definition of racism was an individualist definition a person who judges uh, somebody by the color of their skin rather than the content of their character is a racist right one person and if you, you can have a bunch of racists of course right. uh, a bunch of individuals who they can all get together and do the sure, same idiocy, sure. but yeah. to uh, look at somebody's physical appearance and then to say, you belong to uh, the group that controls the country, I, I have difficulty even buying that one. You mean uh, maybe all whites were racist until President Obama was elected and he put in uh, you know, a, a black uh, attorney general and so on. And uh, d does that mean that everybody was uh, not racist during the Obama years and then all of a sudden once uh, uh, President Trump was elected, uh, the, everybody became, a, you know, all whites became racist it, again? It's, it's idiocy. It is very interesting how this, this argument falls apart. The, the critical race argument falls apart um, very quickly. But the, the ideology behind it, um, which is power, right? We, in the critical race theory is about how this affects yeah. with power. The, the ideology behind the critical race theory doesn't d dissolve because you have the, and you saw that with the protests, you have a mass amount of people coming out saying, you know, the, that a certain uh, demographic of our society is being attacked unfairly and, and, and un, un, uh, uh, disproportionately. And then they go up to a, an officer, um, and then and back to um, to my philosophy on skin color. Uh, I, I, looking back through history, we, our skin color and our 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 genetic mutations over time have have been a result of where we lived, what the the natural environment uh, insisted on our survival in in becoming. My my skin is lighter because. You know, generations ago, my my as I discussed, my Northern family Europeans was Europeans as opposed to yeah, living at the equator. They were, they were in Sweden, right? Yeah. So so lighter skin, more vitamin D that necessitated a, in, in a, a better adaption of, of vitamin D into their bodies. And now I am a few generations past that. Maybe my skin color is going a different direction after living in California for you know forty years. What whatever it is, the these changes happen over time, and and the, to to start to draw these lines. Um, on race uh, 
I look at skin color and I, I teach my kids like they, you know, they're six and eight and they, they know that the difference between a person with dark skin, and a person with light skin is the dark, dark, the person with dark skin has more melanin. They'll recite this, you know, and they don't know what melanin is, but they know that's the concept. And it's not a concept where this is a different race, a different type of person. You don't know about this person because you never grew up with this person. No, this is a person and they have kids in their classrooms with different characteristics and they don't go, oh, that's a totally different type of person that I don't understand or can't understand. Well, that's that sort of going down the line of uh, Rosa Parks, who had the famous statement along the lines, uh, there's only one human race. Yeah. And now that, that, of course, is right as far as biologists concerned, there's only one human species. Right. But there are obviously ethnic differences among various groups of people. Uh, you know, there are people with African or African heritage, yes, they're probably going to be darker than you or I. Or uh, the uh, people from Asia are going to look different. There, there are these ethnic differences. The thing is, though, they don't really matter. They, they might matter if you're looking at a specific illness like sickle cell anemia or right. uh, the Which risk of skin cancer Africa, or, yeah. or whatever. You know, yeah. they're, they're all they're all sorts. They're little genetic. Uh, uh, how shall I say? gifts that have been handed down through the generations right. that uh, where it might play a role. But uh, in the things that really govern our how we live in society, how we function in our environments nowadays, race doesn't matter. It right. really shouldn't matter. What That's the whole concept of uh, the, the famous statement by Martin Luther King, judging people by the content and of their character that not is by the color of their skin resonated with me in in a very big way yeah. because as somebody who's grown up um you know pre-internet um, and then somebody who spent half my life now with internet access and and digital uh, you know and technical technological uh transformation i have um i've i've been flooded with um, information from all sides and, and it kind of feels like sometimes a tugging of everything that I am in, in all different directions. But, um, that, that's always meant a lot to me that, that this person, Martin Luther King, um, said, and, and I think there's a reason why that particular phrase resonated throughout the generations is there's so much truth to it is that we, compassion, you know, in a sense is defined by that. Like, look at my character that's yeah, where you'll exactly. find the compassion that's the important that's the important thing with people and not their uh ethnicity i grew up in the 50s and 60s and we w would sit down and watch and cheer the the efforts in the south that were uh being made to desegregate right. the south i mean we i grew up in uh, the northern bay area here in california and every night the TV was on and we'd watch the Huntley Brinkley reports and they'd be reporting about this, that, or the other in the Deep South. And we were actually cheering. I mean, we'd literally cheer the progress yeah. that was being made. And we'd, you know, boo the, boo the, the Bull Connors of this world. Yeah. It, it, it was, uh, we were thrilled then when finally, and we were heartbroken, of course, when Martin Luther King was assassinated, just heartbroken. Yeah. Uh, but we were so grateful of the progress that was made and it really came to fruition about the time I was reaching adulthood around 1970 and since then it's been the progress has been great it hasn't been great you know, we still have social issues out there there are obviously discrepancies among ethnic groups you look at them uh, in terms of economics and so on you you break down the 
the, the difference or the ethnic groups, you, you identify people in different ethnic groups, then you do an analysis of their economic status, and you're going to find differentiation discrepancies between virtually all ethnic groups. Right. One of the things you'll see in critical race theory and in examining, for instance, uh, the discrepancies in the justice system, more uh, black Americans in prison proportionate to their population compared to whites in prison. Uh, there are all sorts of reasons that explain that. But So they go into these studies, and they first of all identify there's a discrepancy. Then they look to uh, adjust the data to take into account uh, various differences, uh, family status uh, uh, from a single family home, uh, whatever home. They go, they go through and they... Uh, try and see, does this explain all the discrepancy? Then they get down to the point, they say, there's still, uh, there's, after looking into these various factors, we still find that there is some ethnic discrepancy. That must be systemic racism. So that systemic racism, in some ways, it's become the God particle of the social sciences, you know, the, the yeah. God particle right. in, uh, right. in nuclear physics, where they have dis dissected the nucleus down to virtually you know, as much as they can, and they still right. say, there's something else there. There's got to be something else there. Uh, and I wonder if, the, if this particular one is is hiding in plain sight. I, I, I want to I, I put that in. Sometimes the, the reality and the truth that we're looking for is hiding in plain sight. And I wonder if give us a, give us a little bit of time and we'll realize the, that there's an elephant in the room that maybe we're not seeing. And then all of a sudden we go, ah, there it is. But what I wanted to uh, to go back to is that you know, ba kind of springboarding off of Martin Luther King's um, his fight, his his effort, and and effort of a bunch of groups. But the fight that he was fighting against was don't judge me for my skin color. It was a real thing back then to judge somebody on their skin color and sure. and to place them in in a social category or or a, um, or an ethnic category or even a legal category. And and he was fighting against that. Then you come fast forward now and you have, you know, an incident which we, we discussed is uh, a, a part of that incident and George Floyd or Jacob Blake or or uh, Breonna Taylor or, um, you know, one that just recently a, a snippet of that information will be given out just enough to be able to to confirm the biases of these of these people. And right now set a fire. Uh, that's because right. that's what's going on. It's oh, it's time to riot. It's time to get out there and protest, and and you give them just enough information to to justify their bad behavior. But then they they go up against a wall, and and back to where this ideology of critical race theory just completely breaks down is because these these people who are going out there and protesting hit a wall that is made up of policemen of all different colors, and those and that. The, the fact that those policemen get to be all different colors, have their own families, have their own pensions, have their own health insurance, have their own homes, um, is what Martin Luther King was fighting for. And, it, and that's now that this critical race ideology is up against that which... This criti the critical race theory, or as I say the popular name, systemic racism, yeah. uh, the... They have decided that this, the narrative at a very superficial level is we have systemic racism. That means the system is racist. That means the system is bad. And anybody who represents the system, 
policeman. Right. No matter what their skin color is. Doesn't now, matter. Now, that, now you're a that, racist. That's right. They say all of a sudden you're no longer. Uh, we've heard the statements out there. Uh, a black cop is no longer we don't uh, blame you. a black American. He's, yeah, absolutely. He's, 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 he's blue. Uh, absolutely. The, uh, he's a part of the system. So it has been used. This concept of systemic racism has been used to justify some really nasty attacks on the system uh, and in the form of rioting, tearing down monuments, uh, uh, attacks on police officers. That when you look at some of the idiots out there who were protesting around the hospital and also some yeah. uh, uh, using their iPhones to, to uh, make comments about the, the, hospital, the shootings. The Ronald McDonald. So oh, just, just, just horrendous things. Calling you know two members of the worst gang in the country have now been eliminated. That making idiotic statements like yeah. that. Uh, it gives them sort of a some sort of a they, at least what they consider to be moral justification to engage in a lot of violence. Now, I, myself, I don't quite understand how walking out of uh, a Target, one of the clips I saw, a guy walking out of a Target with one of these big uh, shopping carts and four flat screen TVs stacked up on top of it. I don't quite know how that uh, is a well, statement those, for... Uh, <laughs> you, you, you brought that up because uh, Ariel, um, and I forget her last name, but uh, I think it was in Chicago when she oh, was speaking. Yeah. A, yeah. And yeah, it, just to... Yeah, and these people are speaking for a generation that is obviously uneducated, uh, miseducated, and is is willing to. And I wouldn't quite call it a generation that's, not, but there are a lot of stupid people out there in this world. Yeah, she was definitely one of them, and she was speaking for a lot of other stupid people who are trying to justify sure, sure. busting open stores and walking out with a bunch of loot. Uh, and she we, justifies we, as reparations. Yeah, and and you're so they're they're. They're misappropriating uh, the the fault and and I think the blame and then anything that they get is a part of this bigger system that and and we can go into it, it's a it's a very it's just an extremely divisive approach. People say we have to get we want unity back in our society. We've all got to uh, we're all in this together. The phrase as you hear all the unity, unity, no divisiveness. Yeah. Like, can't we all get together again? And then you've got this type of stupidity going on, the looting and systemic racism that drives a wedge right between people on the basis of ethnicity. Right. That's uh, pretty much uh, the wrong way to go if you want to will, have a bunch of people living together in peace. It would only um, end up in resentment um, on both sides. And, it, and, and, and you look at a classroom full of kids, and if and, and that's where I, I think, you know, in, and... Uh, let me know what you think um, that we're really I've I'm very happy not having my kids in um, in a public education system that would attempt to um, to push this information in this this ideology into classrooms to teach young children to look at their uh, their neighbor at their desk neighbor differently because of the color of their yeah. skin that's going in a, a very bad direction and it will only lead in bad things we we may get there in california there's i believe a statute on the governor's desk now that would require ethnic studies a semester of ethnic studies in order to graduate high school supposed to be implemented i don't know in the uh 2024 or 2026 something like that uh i if it's ethnic studies along the lines of anthropology the way we used to study various ethnic groups and history and so on that's one thing 
if it's to push this uh, critical race theory, and that's where it's going, at least that's where the right. attempt was going yeah. a summer ago. In the summer of 2019, there were attempts to get a ethnic studies curriculum together, and it was just outrageous, the stuff that they were putting in there. I can't think of anything more divisive. Uh, you, uh, teach your, you teach uh, little Johnny, who happens to be African-American, to hate little Jimmy, who happens to be white, and you teach little Jimmy to have all sorts of guilt feelings and so on, but maybe you can find some ethnic group for him to hate too. Uh, it's just, uh, this, this stuff is foolish, and what we've got to do is get back to what America was founded on. It was founded on individual liberty, individual rights, not rights of a collective group, right. uh, not rights of one ethnic group over another. The, and if we start going down the lines of reparations and guilt-tripping a huge section of the uh, population and giving the other section of a, another section of the population, so to say, a, a get out of jail free card to go out and loot and riot, which is uh, what some of the politicians. Uh, the attorney uh, have generals been doing. have have backed that up, and it is, yeah. it is it is led down a bad path for them already. And they're they're, it's it's nice to see that we haven't gotten too far without seeing a backlash in the the decisions that some of the politicians some of the the members of the the law enforcement community that have green lighted some of this looting and some of this rioting that that they are now getting their comeuppance before the whole they're starting to realize this was not such a good idea yeah. the, i mean the of course but some of some are just absolutely weak individuals the mayor of portland it is just pitiful to watch such yeah. a, a, a weak gentleman there uh, who I'm sure is probably a very nice guy in personal life and all that but all he does is get up there and say can't we all get along and then when they come to his condominium building and start to light it yeah. on fire instead of uh, uh, having the riot really broken up and going out and arresting people and standing his ground okay I'll move just, right. just an absolute wuss well, he can move, and that's that's like the the most insane thing is he's supporting this idea that they're they're pushing. When they come to his neighborhood, he actually has the privilege to move somewhere where they can't get to him. He may he may have that financial wherewithal. Yeah, yeah. and and you, and then on the other on the other side of it, you have the the mayor in Chicago who, when they came to her. Uh, condominium she says oh no get the police here move these people out so she took a different approach where which was no I'm going to use the power that I have with the police department that I don't use for other people I'm going to use it for myself sure. there's too. Uh, there are a lot of what a shock there's some self-serving politicians out there who knew uh, who, who would have ever expected yeah. that and that they're and that some of them are uh, on in the Democratic Party and on the political left. I never would have expected that, although that's the way it's been. For instance, in every socialist communist country that has ever been out there, they do take care of number one. Uh, Fidel Castro was said to have ripped off his literally billions of dollars out of his country uh, off to Swiss bank accounts. The same yeah. uh, in Venezuela. Uh, well, the, Chavez was down there. The person just, who owns this uh, building that we're sitting in, um, I was just talking to him yesterday, and he he works in the film industry. Um, he does uh, a variety of things. And so they're going back to work. He, he was telling me that. Good. But we started to talk about he he's taken a couple trips to Cuba and he's he's been on the ground there. He's met Castro's son doing film things um, uh, and uh, in the industry that they were working on, whatever project that was. And he he said you know the same thing that 
you know, the there is a government elite in that country. Sure. It's a communist country, and it's a government government elite. And then everybody else is is living on rations and living um, as equal. They're, they're all equal, but they're all equal to a, in in almost poverty. Um, there are some who are working side jobs and doing different things to elevate themselves and own a home. Trying, yeah, trying but, to get by. But sure. it, but it is it's and and it is not the the equality. Oh, under the all. law that that people think they're getting not not at all i saw it in east germany i lived in west germany for such a long time and i had some contacts with east germany uh it was east germany was a dismal place but the people who were getting by okay were doing pretty well had all the bananas and stuff they could eat were the uh the bosses and of course the bosses it's not like a democracy where people fight to get, you know, full out competition to get elected to political office there. It was much as the faculties at our universities. They appointed people up the chain and so on to move them up. And of course, they only appointed the people who ideologically were consistent with them. Can't have any dissent up there. The result is that they eventually end up with a bunch of fools running the country, but they're buddies and, right. uh, but they're pretty, in, pretty much idiots and they eventually run the country into the ground. Right. And I, and I think that's the, you know, what I have gotten out of this and, and where, you know, my personal journey has led me, you know, I've, I, I've grew, I grew up poor. So one of the things that triggers me is, well, there is wealth all around me. So how am I not getting the wealth that I feel like I should be getting in order to succeed in this life? How come, you know, somebody who is my same age is obviously doing much better than me, or at least for, uh, by yeah. all perceives, uh, perceived information, they are doing much better than me. How can I, you know, how can I do it? So, you know, going from a wage earner, somebody who's just putting in work and, and then knowing that, you know, when I found out, that I could survive on my own. Um, I was living in Las Vegas. I was detached from any family. I didn't have a support network. Yeah. And then knowing, okay, I can go into to a, a business. I can get a job at minimum wage. I can start earning. I can I can set aside a, a certain amount of money to afford a place to live and food. Sure. I can actually start to function. That was that was a very uh, a revolutionary moment for me. Knowing. I'm not going to drown out here in the in It's the a revolutionary moment for every child growing up when they finally leave the nest, if they ever leave the nest. Uh, but they probably it's parents' duty at some point to kick them out of the nest. Right. Uh, but one of, one of the things that uh, I wanted to uh, touch on the with systemic racism, where I found it's also very detrimental to the people it purports to help, is creates this boogeyman of the, uh, the the system, the racist system. Right. And you'll never have an opportunity to succeed. No matter what you do, they'll always be against you. So may as well just try and get by however you can. Go join a gang. God only knows what. That's sort of an underlying idea there. And when they address social problems, they will only drill the, the proponents of this ideology they will only drill down so far until they say, well, we can't go any further in finding a solution because it's systemic racism, and they don't really get down to the nuts and bolts of where a lot of the social problems can be addressed. 
one aspect I mentioned briefly in the article is the gangster culture. That's quite prevalent, as we know, in uh, especially inner cities, be it yeah. the Crips or the Bloods or God only knows what's or MS-13. Um, it's a real nasty, nasty culture. I, I'm convinced that that culture, that gangster culture, is what, for instance, led to the death of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown. They were both absolutely enamored of the gangster culture, and they that caused them to do make some pretty bad decisions. One of the bad decisions, it looks like, when you go back and review the Trayvon Martin case, just before he attacked uh, George Zimmerman, he was talking with his girlfriend on the phone, and she was telling him that this guy who's cruising around in the pickup, he might be a gay out there wanting to pick you up. In the gangster culture, that's not a good thing to, to be concerned about. So, uh, as it appears the facts were, uh, Trayvon Martin confronted George Zimmerman just outside as Zimmerman was standing next to his pickup uh, and uh, said, you got a problem, man? And Zimmerman said, no, I don't, got, I don't have a problem. And Martin said, you have now, and cold cocked him, you know, belted him, one knocked him to the ground and started pounding him and, that, and got shot. There, what would have happened if he had said, if Zimmerman said, no, I don't have a problem, and, said, and Trayvon Martin said, well, look, you may have been... I don't know what you're watching me for, but I happen to be visiting my dad in the neighborhood. So just leave me alone. Right. Nothing would have happened. It would have it, nothing. Yeah. Nothing. He would have be alive. He would be alive. A, a today. de-escalation of yeah, conflict. Yeah. In but that hey, instance. gangster culture doesn't permit that. Right. Gangster, you, you got to defend that. You know that right. macho honor, sense of honor. And so he belted the guy. How about Michael Brown? He goes into a uh, and he had a history of some minor criminal offenses too. The uh, I don't know whether it was prosecuted, but there's one videotape out there of him mugging, uh, mugging an older gentleman, and he uh, he goes into the store and picks up a, a, this shoplifts a box of cigars. After getting caught, he said, "Oh, you're right. I shouldn't have taken them, and here they are back. I'm so terribly sorry. Please don't call the police. Nothing would have happened. Right. Instead, he gets he decides to strong arm the shop owner." Uh, probably fully aware that there's a video monitoring system in there, but he could have expected the shop owner to call the cops. But he's he walks off with a box of cigars, or c- cigarillos, I guess they were, actually. He then goes walking down the middle of the street with his his plunder in his uh, tucked under his arm, not thinking maybe the shop owner is going to call the cops and maybe a call will go out. Maybe he's being a little bit significant walking down the middle of the street as a 300-pound kid with yeah. a box of cigarillos in his hand. Right. No, nope, the cop uh, tells him, get out of the street. They hadn't gotten the call yet. And as the cop's pulling away, he gets the call, goes back and uh, uh, confronts Martin from cops inside the car. And Martin, instead of uh, uh, saying, you got me, he, uh, he punches the cop, busts his face, tries to go for the pistol. Uh, I think one round was actually discharged there and then goes sauntering off. And then when the cop is uh, telling him, stop, stop, and so on, instead of, even running, running would have been a very weak sign of weakness for a, a gangster, right? He turns and he charges the cop and gets killed. I mean, that was a series of absolutely stupid decisions. And what motivated him to make these decisions? The only motive I can come up with is he was so into this macho gangster culture that it caused him to, to finally get himself killed. On that note, um, there, that culture is being currently defended now as 
as a result of systemic racism that created that culture, which gives them the excuse that no matter what they did, it's still, and the bad decisions that they made are still a result of the systemic racism. So that's why this is happening. So the, the, the guilt and to the blame is still on the system, still on the cops. And it, well, I, the, the, the foundation of, of being an American is the opportunity. And if, if I look at it and you brought up a couple of good points on it is there is a place in our society where systemic racism is pervasive and that is the music industry and the music industry, um, where you, you have, uh, a large culture of, of, and, and a subsection of music that is glamorized. It glamorizes violence. It glamorizes um, criminal activity. Um, and I, I say that as somebody who grew up with NWA, Tupac, Notorious B.I.G. I, I, I grew up with this music, listening to this music. I know how it influenced my decision making in my life. And it's the same. It's the same exact thing. But that it is it is delivered to a a collective group as this is your way out if you want to succeed in life then you ought to do all of these things because this is how we succeeded it, it is um, for me it is pervasive and systemic in that it and it, it reaches a young you know a child a child's mind and says I'm a millionaire because I did all of these things wrong and you have even a, a like a rick ross and i don't know if you know all these names i'm throwing well, out I, I, i've i've heard some of my guys say music uh i don't think it's really ever influenced uh, my thinking on other things yeah and besides that i tend to prefer classical music so exactly like the the yeah. so the so other other cultures are getting well whether, whether it's too short with pimping um you know Tupac and and B.I.G. with drug dealing or gangster attitudes, these things then become the way out for children who don't have a father figure to look to. Sure, they 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 create this false image of uh, the glory of being a gangster. This isn't the first time it's happened. It happened. Look how uh, Jesse James was glamorized and Billy the Kid right. was glamorized. Who didn't want to be a cowboy outlaw? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and back back in the 1800s, I mean, they, there were you know dime dime novels or uh, pamphlets written about them, and they were glorified. Uh, look into the uh, uh, 1920s and the 30s, and Bonnie and Clyde, and I mean that some of these gangsters, right. uh, John Dillinger, they they were really folk heroes back then. Right. I mean they they were murderers, but they were folk heroes. Right. And the same thing has happened now in segments of uh, our culture nowadays, especially in uh, uh, the inner city, and it plays into the the concept of systemic racism. Almost gives that. Really, as far as I'm concerned, a really degenerate culture uh, cover. Pimping and dealing in drugs and murder, sorry, that's not the way. I call that pretty degenerate. It's not, it's not the way yeah. anybody should be living. Yeah. One thing I think is important for people to note also is that 
How many gangsters do you see who've got nice 401k plans? How many ever each re reach retirement right. age? Uh, it's, it's a pretty short-lived career. Even for those who are extremely successful at it for a while, they often end up spending their retirement in jail for the last 30 or 40 years of their life. Right. It's, uh, There's very few examples of that being a successful avenue. And, and so... Just, just to kind of give a, maybe a good light to and, and some hope to um, people who might be listening to this that, you know, the, the true, the American values, and, and I, I do want to note, it's, it's disappointing for me as, as a father, as somebody who grew up in, in America um, and had a, I got an alternative education that was, that was very much, um, bit, it was self-driven. Um, my my parents had six uh, kids total, five other kids besides me, and I was the, the older, uh, more functional, so I did got the least amount of attention. So a lot of my education was, was he's fine, he's got his books, he's, got, he's doing yeah. fine, and we're yeah. a lot of attention. So, so, but it is disappointing that the idea of ethnic studies uh, would be um, pushed, especially in, in, a, in a maybe a, in, in a degenerative sense where the constitutional studies are not there, you know, and, and humanity just, and, and it's interesting that the humanities in, in the, um, university systems and academia is, is antithetical to true humanity in, in many ways where you and I deserve to know what our personal rights are with each other and how to respect each other. And, and that, not being a, a really a foundation of our our first grade, second grade, and third grade education, where we we learn what people's rights are, and and start to create a culture on that. I did want to bring that up, but the other well, part so of it that's that's the main aspect. The there's the under the old definition of racism, that's an individualist aspect, an individual sin. Under this concept of systemic racism, it's collectivist. It's a collectivist approach. And that is consistent, I suppose, with the social sciences where they tend to group people together and then they do run all sorts of data on different groups and do all sorts of analysis, but they sort of look, lose sight of the individual because they're dealing with groups. I'm not saying you shouldn't examine those things. Of course you should. Sociology, uh, all those things are just fine to look at, but you should never lose sight of the individual, and especially in our country and in the law and in our interpersonal dealings with each other, we should always view each other as individuals and not say, because you belong to one group or another, one ethnic group or another, I'm going to uh, call you a racist or yeah. I'm going to uh, use some other uh, term in the other direction. It's, it's just... Idiocy. It's very hard for a person who is getting support from a particular group to take that initiative to leave that group for for what would be a wild west. What would be I'm going to be an individual and there's people don't know how much power there's more power in being an individual. In my experience on this planet, sure. 41 years, there's more power in being an individual than there is being a part of a group, which is why I'm I'm an, a no party preference individual. I I just love my American values. I love being able to pick and choose what I believe in, what I go after. And, and I really, I, I really appreciate that. And I also know the value of being in a group as well, but I had to leave in order for me to succeed, to be where I am at today. It, it didn't start early. I, I was a part of a group and that group was my family structure. And that, that 
structure was criminal for, for almost all of my life. Um, my family was, uh, the, the other boys in my family were criminals. They're criminal element. They were, they did everything that, that any mm-hmm. criminal gang does. And I know all of that culture and all that I had to leave them. And, and it is almost just like any other gang. You put your life in danger in some senses or, or at least your health or, or your reputation. You get, you get into gang criminal behavior. It's uh, normally not going to end well at all, of course. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea where your relatives are now. I, we don't need to go there. but Yeah, um, They're in the same places they all end okay, up. Okay, okay. So it, Behind what they used to call, uh, Germany had the phrase uh, translated, Swedish curtains. In other words, steel curtains, bars. Right, right. <laughs> Right, Swedish curtains. I don't know what. Oh, that may have been a terribly politically incorrect thing. To say. I don't know. <laughs> but well, uh, as a as a Swede, uh, <laughs> a person of Swedish heritage, I I'll definitely give you a pass on okay, that. I'm not offended okay. at all. Okay, okay. Uh, the uh, uh, the the being an individual is absolute key. Coming from a family that is supportive in a good sense is one of the key aspects to that. But there are a lot of people who go through. Fantastic families, well-to-do families, right. and they turn out to be absolute idiots and fools and criminals and jerks. Right. Uh, then you've got other people who come from the worst possible backgrounds, and they go on to be extremely successful in life because they have recognized their own value as an individual, and they have recognized that this society, thank goodness nowadays we don't have systemic racism. If you work hard in any field you choose, you're probably going to do pretty well. It's the one of the most disturbing things I think about the new systemic racism movement is how they denigrate such things as the two-parent family, the uh, 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 Protestant work ethic, being punctual. Of, uh, there's being punctual, working hard, uh, having a plan, doing the task, yeah, showing up for work. All all of those things. Those were actually. Uh, give that example in the article, those have actually been called uh, racist concepts. Right. Those are concepts that work well in any culture. <laughs> yeah. Be a good, productive, responsible citizen. Gee, what's what's wrong with that? Right. Uh, but uh, one thing I, I would like to, to mention here, the, yeah. uh, uh, the for members of your audience, uh, they can get my article by emailing me directly. I've got a little email set up for it. It's Aaron Christopher, all written together like my name, A-R-E-N-D Christopher, at gmail.com. And if they send me an email, I'll be glad to send them a PDF copy of the we article. Will put, we'll put that in Good. our, our uh, description. So That's if anybody's listening to this or, or watching great. this, you can go to the description and we'll have that email in there. So no charge. And I also, uh, they, as far as I'm concerned, people can spread the article around as much as they want, use it however they want. I, the more people who read it, the better, I think. I, you know, not to uh, to have my own personal judgment on your article, but I found it at least to be educational um, and and a, um, a annotated educational piece that gave some real good information in terms of you know people who don't know what um, what critical race theory is or systemic racism is or or what has been um, adopted as an ideology. If, if people just hear the word systemic racism, they go, you know, I, they, they, they're sympathetic 
person would say, I don't like that either. Of course, yeah. I don't like that. It's a, it's not something yeah. you, we can support, but you, you, the way you break it down, it gives, uh, I think a real good, um, overview. If, if somebody can read the 5,000 words that it is, it's, it is not, um, a, a purely simple read, but it is broken down in, in plain English, yeah. which I, I felt it was, was it was, I didn't in, you know, I wrote it in relative plain English. Yeah. Uh, the way I used to draft contracts that I drafted in plain English, but uh, all of it, us laymen it, can appreciate yes, that from the, a, an attorney. The, the the logic in it is, I think, very convincing, and I think it's very needed. I think people, especially people in positions of authority, they would be well advised to read that article because they are going to be confronted by people in public meetings saying. You know, this is a systemically racist organization. Our town is governed by a bunch of, uh, you know, we have systemic racism in our town. We have to eliminate it. And they'll be looking around saying, where, where is it? Where is that systemic? Yeah. I don't know. Do you it's know? That boogeyman just, that you, yeah, you brought up. Yeah. yeah. And uh, they should realize that it's a ploy. It's often, I mean, there's a lot of hustle going on with it. Down in San Luis Obispo, our county seat here, I think this the city council there has allocated something like $160,000, something like that, to, I don't know who's going to get that money, but right. it's probably going to be some consulting group or somebody to put together some program on how to get rid of systemic racism. There is a tremendous amount right. of hustle going on there, people earning a lot of money, spreading a lot of garbage. And, and <laughs> as you as you noted your and named your, uh, your column, the myth of systemic racism, and, and that's kind of where it really is. You, you either by the ideology that systemic racism is bad without knowing what it actually is as a, as a actual entity or an existing element that says, yes, that is systemic racism. We can see it, we can remove it. That has been um, historically uh, legislated and you can look at it and say, that's legislated racism. We know that and that that is you know the textbook uh, version of um, systemic. And outside of that, you really get into a place where what is it? Is it, and it's perceived microaggressions. It's a lot of, 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 of really interesting concepts coming out of academia that is spreading. And in order to have a good foundation of what to, to stand on, if you, if you say, you know, I don't think this is right, but I can't really put my finger on it. I think your column gives a good uh, synopsis of here is some, some counter arguments to this idea. And it, it doesn't mean it's right. And I, I think, you know, it doesn't mean it's wrong. It's here. Here's some information. So I, I, I think the analysis, putting, putting it simply, when you look at the concept of systemic racism as it's now passed around today, as it's used today, it's a bunch of hooey. It ju it's just doesn't stand up to a critical analysis. And it's, uh, but because it's got the racism term in it, very few people uh, dare to challenge the concept for fear of being called racist, which you can imagine I've uh, uh, been called a few times yeah. in the meantime. Uh, there is, uh, they, they, don't, they don't want to tackle the issue, but it's an issue I think we really have to address in our society so that we understand we cannot divide the society along race lines. It's got to be the individual that counts and not the collective group of one race or another and right. all the all this insanity about identity politics it's just it, it it makes no sense and we certainly don't do it in the law and the law is actually what you know it, it sort of governs the way we live together right. and if the law can manage to get around it maybe the rest of us can too yeah
No, I agree with that. I, I do want to say for anybody who's now lasted a, an hour and 37 minutes, Chris, oh. I really so appreciate. Long, long, long. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate this, this, uh, this discussion. I thought, I think I find it to be very valuable in our, in our discourse and, um, really relevant to our, the, the thesis of our show, which is kitchen table talk over the grill of cancel culture that we're going to discuss things that maybe need to be discussed in a very you know, casual format. Um, well, I'm going to have a couple of, of gentlemen on, on Friday who were, um, who had, organized or participated in some of the rallies that happened um, in, in, during uh, the, the Black Lives Matter rallies or, or other um, and, you know, police brutality rallies that happened. We'll have them on Friday to, to discuss kind of the, you know, the same format um, and find out what they, what they sure, feel. Sure. Um, I think one of the things that I, for me, being somebody who had to find grit and, and, and perseverance in a world that, that, wasn't giving me any free passes. That's how I felt growing up. I, I dug in, I wanted something. I didn't, I wasn't given a college education. I wasn't given, um, a, a, uh, any, any established foundation to go live. I had to grind and find my way. Um, I'm so grateful that I did. And one of the elements that, that means so much to me is that, um, and my wife told it to me within the last three months, she said, don't give up five minutes before the miracle. <laughs> because yeah, yeah. times get dark and and sometimes when you are an individual and and you do, and you're you're endeavoring something that you are doing with your individual power and your individual independence as a human being it's going to get dark sometimes and i think that the idea of systemic racism gives you an excuse to quit and and i just want everybody out there right now who's listening to this and and or or watching this and who've lasted this long with us to know that that's what re, that's what I hope you come away with is that don't give yourself any excuses to not succeed. Don't blame anybody else because you have it in you to, to get through those dark times. And when you come out on the other side, it will be because you hung on there and the people around you who, who failed, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different reasons why they failed in, in, you know, I hope you have compassion on them, but your success will, will be tested in moments. And, and I think that, um, that we see even in and extrapolating that to our national narrative, we might be going through a particularly dark time as a country right now. And, and I would just say, you know, find the American spirit in you to know that your brothers and sisters have fought for, for freedom, for other people in your communities and, and the ability to achieve great things in this country, uh, bond together, and link arms and, and, and know that we're, we're all together in this and we will find a way through this. We will find a way well, on yeah, the other that, side. Like I said, this country offers so many opportunities to those who want to work, who are going to go to, you know, if you, in our public schools, we offer great education in our public schools. Unfortunately, a lot of the students decide that they don't want to take advantage of it. I don't know why it's, yeah. it's, it's beyond me, but they decide from the beginning that they are just going to remain stupid. Uh, and no matter what we do, and they succeed, I'm afraid. Yeah, uh, the, you, you, you achieve anything you put your mind to. Yeah, and uh, the, 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 but if you do what successful people do, get an education, work hard in school, work hard at your jobs, start out, you may, are not going to start at the top of the corporation or the business you're in. You, you may have to struggle right from the, 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 the start, but 
keep keep on going, keep right. on going. We had the phrase in the '60s, "Keep on trucking." I don't know if people even say that anymore. Well, we will say it now. Keep on trucking. Keep, keep on trucking, and they'll do just fine. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much, Chris. Thank it you for was, having it me. It was a pleasure. We'll put, we'll put all the information, the links to the yeah. article, and yeah. and as well as uh, your contact information, your email address in there, where people can get a PDF yeah. of it. Uh, maybe have some discords with you. Sure. Uh, sure. Say hi to Dave Congleton for us when you go see him. <laughs> sure. sure. Uh, I've been on his show as well when yeah. I was running for mayor in 2016. Okay. And uh, he just uh, you know. I, I appreciate the, the media out there that is keeping it honest and, and keeping it uh, real for uh, uh, lack of better terms. So, but thank you very much. Um, everybody will see you guys next time.